So we're back on this subject that we've entitled My Gospel, and the basic supposition is that Christianity as we know it today is largely a revelation that was given to the Apostle Paul by God himself. Uh, three times Paul uses that phrase, my gospel, and if you look in your Bibles in Romans chapter 2, in the verse immediately preceding verse 17, where we started reading this morning, uh, Paul uses that phrase on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I've been thinking about, and of course the collect today says that part of the good news of the gospel is the coming of the Holy Spirit. People don't receive the Holy Spirit by preaching about the Holy Spirit. I think this is one of the um, defects in the popular church in America today. We have weekends at churches where people come for a weekend and the objective is that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm not necessarily saying that that is wrong, but if we listen to the colic today, people come to understand the gift of the Holy Spirit, the colic's very specific about this, by the preaching of the gospel. And that's the capital G gospel, by the way, if you weren't looking at it very closely. The colic is the capital G gospel. There is something that we know as the gospel. Paul, because Christianity as we know it today is a revelation largely received uh, by Paul, we could say that the gospel today started out as Paul's gospel, my gospel. And we've been tracking the conversation that the early church had about this very controversial subject about whether Jewish Christians were going to allow Gentile Christians to become full-fledged members in the body of Christ without additions, addendums, law practices, particularly as we've seen the rite of circumcision. And so uh, to refresh your memory, and frankly to refresh my memory too, it's amazing, even though I study this stuff and speak for an hour I guess I'll admit that, and I'll speak for an hour every Sunday on it. I still, um, I, a week later, you know, like the week goes by, I'm working, you're working, everybody's working. I have to now, what did I say? Where did I end off? Well, where are we at with this? So if I'm doing that, I know that you can't be any more interested in this than I am. And that means that Everybody else is less interested in this than I am. And so if I've forgotten what we've been talking about, then I know that probably the same can be said for you. Here is what Paul, uh, I want to show you a verse of scripture in Ephesians, talking about this gospel. If you turn there, I was reading something a few months ago, and this uh, phrase uh, jumped out at me, the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. So we know uh, Ephesians chapter 6 is uh, Paul talks about the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, starting with the, the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and uh, putting on the sandals of, of 
peace of the gospel, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. After that, he says, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now look at verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So there's many different kinds of prayer. I know that uh, Pentecostalists like to say, here is a specific mention praying in the spirit. That means from their understanding, that means uh, speaking with other tongues. It includes that, but it doesn't exclude other kinds of prayer because Paul says, in other words, a prayer in English, if we just heard Christy pray this morning, how many sense the presence of the Holy Spirit as she was praying? Praying in the Spirit or praying with the Spirit doesn't necessarily mean speaking with other tongues. There's all kinds of different prayer. I know years ago, Pentecostal people would say to me, you know, we went to a Baptist church or I listened to Charles Stanley on the TV. I felt the presence of God when he was praying. And I'm like, yeah, isn't that strange? How a Baptist who doesn't have the Holy Spirit prays in English and you sense the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, so we have narrowed the opening into the body of Christ a little bit too much. But if you read the text closely, look at it again, and uh, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, all kinds of prayer, one translation says, to that end, here's a purpose verse, a goal verse. Here's the objective, to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication. Supplication specifically is a, the kind of prayer where we petition God. Supplication means we ask. We're invited to ask, to seek, to knock. Making supplication for all the saints. Now look at verse 19, and... I call this an uncommon request. I don't know. I know that I've asked you, if you're going to pray for me to do the THS prayer, time, health, and strength, but typically we don't hear preachers make this request, this specific request. Look at what, it, what he says. So he's asking them to pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim, read it with, with me, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it, there comes the word again, boldly as I ought to speak. So the gospel, according to Paul, the mystery of the gospel, is something that we need the Spirit's presence to communicate correctly because, look, for example, in this church, the history of our church, we have, over the last many years, there has been a price to pay to speak these bold wor words about the mystery of the gospel. I've often told people, I've said, you know, if I could have figured out a way to stay in the UPC and still maintain my integrity and character, it would have been better for me. And I, I think that's true. It's not that I went looking for a fight or looking for a way to get out. You know, that's, that's the typical accusation. Well, you know, it's just, you know, when you don't have to preach all those standards and holiness stuff, it's easy to build a church. I want to tell you, it's not any easier to build a church. 
if you commit yourself to speaking boldly about the mystery of the gospel, you're going to have to have people praying for you to do that because there is an inclination to just say, well, you know, maybe the price is too high. So we end up pointing fingers at each other in this controversy. But even for Paul, there, there must have been times, I, I think about when he went to Corinth for 18 months and he was afraid, and then he has this dream or vision where the Lord speaks to him and says, don't be afraid, for I have many people in this city. I guess what I'm saying, there's always this temptation to compromise the essence of the gospel, which Paul describes as a mystery. I have a book that I bought many years ago. It was written by a Catholic theologian by the name of Schieben. I think he was Dutch or German. I think it's entitled The Mysteries of the Bible. And you can imagine, when I saw that book and looked at it, I think he lists seven or eight mysteries that are listed in the scriptures, and one of the mysteries is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Unfortunately, the popular church in America has taken the mystery away of the gospel. We, we think the gospel is simple. Uh, you just, you know, you pray to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and talk to a man uh, the other day who's who is a confirmed Baptist, and he's, he's talking to me about people who say they believe in God. He said, yes, but what, when was the day? When was the time? When, where was the place that you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. There's more mystery to our salvation than just that, to say that because I prayed a prayer at a certain time, certain place, then I'm saved. Da-da, I'm saved. There's more depth to the gospel than that. How God begins to deal with a person. We used to have uh, an old widow lady in this church, Sister Claspo. She had a little, was it a chihuahua? I think a little Mexican dog. You know, one of those. his name was Tuffy. And she taught when Sister Claspo would get down by her bed and kneel. She lived over here on Shepley Drive, Glasgow Village, at night, and she taught Tuffy to put his paws up on the bed with it and put her put his head down. And when Tuffy died, Brother Eddie had to go over and hold a funeral for Tuffy. She came from a large family. Reg probably remembers her, maybe a little bit Lloyd too. There were twelve or thirteen siblings altogether. And she would, on a Sunday night, she would get up during testimony service. She said, I don't know why God only saved me out of my family. She said, no, none of my brothers or sisters are saved. They're, they don't go to church at all. I don't know why. She would get up and begin the song, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation. And I'm like, uh, you know a praise and worship song, Sister Class? What, did Tuffy teach you that song? Or, But see, she hit on something there, which I think is so, if we can figure all of this out, if we have the answers for everything, we don't really understand the depth of the mystery of the gospel. How can it be 
uh, that God would send his only begotten son to die in my place. It's a mystery. I don't understand it. It will require an eternity for us to fathom it uh, in the way that God intended. And I, I feel that sometimes resistance about the subject, you know, because it's kind of like, oh, well, I know what the gospel is. I think we know what the American church has told us that the gospel is, but we don't really understand the mystery of the gospel. So what Paul is out to do here is to, we sense it in this passage. In verse 17, he calls them out, as we've seen. If you, are, if you call yourself a Jew, uh, this is the first time he mentions them. He is out to destabilize, as Barclay says, to, to destabilize the Jewish sense of confidence that Jews were in a different category from Gentiles in their obedience to the law. If they were playing the hypocrite, at least they could say, you know, God has given us the law. If the statement is true that Christianity as we know it today is uh, largely a revelation that was given to the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul writes the majority of the New Testament. And if the book of Romans is his uh, most complete, you may have remembered a few weeks ago, I said that the book of Romans is really a compilation of arguments that Paul had used over the years to justify his bold preaching of my gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, telling us about the life, ministry, work, death, resurrection of Jesus, and then the book of Acts, Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, tells us uh, in a narrative form how the church got its beginning, and then we come to the book of Romans. So why is the book of Romans placed immediately after the book of Acts? Because it is the greatest explication of the mystery of the gospel that is contained in the New Testament. So if we really want to understand the gospel, for God's sake, duh, for, actually, literally for God's sake, you can't afford to ignore the book of Romans. You can't just say, well, the book of, I had one person tell me, the book of Romans, that's, that's for the Baptists. I don't think so. I don't think you begun to fathom, you, you have been trained, you have been indoctrinated, yea, I will grow wax even worse, you have been brainwashed into uh, stepping across the river on certain stones, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. Uh, there was one preacher who said, you know, People focus on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They skip right over the book of Acts and right into the book of Romans. And, and I want to say, well, you're really not into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have set up housekeeping in the book of Acts and everything around it is ignored except you skip over the book of Romans because you want to get the first and second Corinthians because that is the Pentecostal church in the early years of the church's history. So we can, we can accuse each other of skipping over. The, the, and let me say this, 
is that all denominations have a a well-worn path through the scriptures. The scriptures they like, the scriptures that support their position, but every theological system has its weakness, and we're not being honest, theologically honest, if we don't admit I've said this before that I subscribe to Calvinism because I believe it answers more questions than it raises, but there are certain weaknesses in it, just as there is in in every theological system. Everybody's going to be wrong about something. You can count on that uh, on the day of judgment. But it's a fatal flaw, you see. It's a fatal flaw when we don't hear, here is, one of the greatest minds in the world, a person like this, Saul of Tarsus, comes along every 500 years, every 1,000 years. Uh, it, it is a fatal flaw when we don't hear the humility in him when he's asking, you need to pray for me so I don't back up away from declaring boldly this mystery of the gospel how God has folded into one body as children of Abraham, both Jews and Gentiles. The mystery of the gospel really is the solution for all the problems that we face in our culture, in in our world today. It it is the only workable solution. Uh, What happens on the day of Pentecost, and you heard me refer to that as a motley crew, can you imagine if we had a group of people in church that was that diverse, and the church growth people have told us that the way to the easy way to build a church is the principle of homogeneity, which just means you a certain group of people attract people that are like them. So we marched through Bell Fountain neighbors. We had a banner that said, "We're just like you." So if you have a church mainly filled with truck drivers, guess what? Who are you going to draw? Who are you going to attract? Well, it's easier to attract more truck drivers. So now we have Cowboy Church. Have you seen that? (laughs) Cowboy Church. We like to go to church in our cowboy gear and our cowboy hat and tie up our horse outside. Or, I don't know, I haven't been to Cowboy Church. And Cowboy Church, I guess they have church in a barn. It's a brand, right? Uh, but if, if you're not a cowboy, what's the chances of you going to cowboy church? So we have white church, we have black church, we have brown church, um, but rarely does the church gather in all the glory of the chaos of Babylon like it did on the day of Pentecost. In fact, we find it irritating when we have to rub elbows with people that are not like us. Well, at least I do. I don't know if you do. It's easier, right, to get along with people that, you know, look like you, eat the same kind of food you do, have the same kind of values. But this whole diversity thing that is such a hot-button issue in our culture right now, the, the mystery of the gospel is the only thing that really Uh, presents a workable solution. He's out to rob the Jewish government. Look look in chapter 3. He's not dissing them just because 
He doesn't like, I remember, we have to remember that Paul was a Jew himself. He understood the Jewish mindset. He had to be delivered himself in three days of blindness and prayer from the Jewish mindset. What advantage has the Jew? Now, if, if you leave your hand there and turn over to chapter 9, he goes through a similar wish. He says, uh, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. You see that? The worship and the promises. He's not disrespecting them. In chapter 3, he says, uh, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the law of God. You know, if you ever see the final assault, any, any film footage of Mount Everest, there is this like razor-thin trail that is a final assault. It's like both sides, if you get off the trail or fell, you'd be gone. This is why he asked people to pray for him so that he might be given words to speak boldly about the mystery of the gospel because the, the final ascent, that I might finish my course with joy, that was Paul's final request. So he is not disrespecting the Jew in that sense just because all oh, you people are crazy you need to understand God's doing a new thing. He's trying to maintain a, a relationship with them, but he also knows that he has been called, there's a, an allegiance that he has to pursue to my gospel, my gospel. So in chapter three, then chapter three of the book of Romans is kind of the core message of the gospel the irreducible core of the gospel in chapter 3, when he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for, what's the next word? For all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a covering, a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. He ends up in verse 28, so that he might be just, and the justifier... Of the one. Who does God justify? The one who has faith in Jesus. So there, there's the gospel. So what Paul is doing in between his declaration in Romans 1, uh, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. He announces the subject. And now he is out to decimate anyone who would challenge uh, this gospel mystery. He's going to take them out. So 
He talks about Gentile immorality. He talks about contrived morality. And now specifically in verse 17 of chapter 2, he he calls out this final group, uh, the Jews, who have placed their faith in their possession of the law. God gave us the law. Uh, This is what makes us righteous. And Paul is out once again to destabilize the Jewish sense of confidence. So Barclay asked a series of questions. We started on this a a couple of weeks ago. Do Jews look down smugly on Gentile immorality? This may be one of the reasons why the book of Romans was written. Obviously, Rome is the capital of the Gentile world. But there was a large colony of Jews living in Rome. And as the church was founded in Rome, it became populated initially with Jewish Christians. And then Gentiles began to be folded in. And it is thought this is one of the reasons why the book of Romans was written because the Jewish Christians felt like they had more provenance. They had more heritage. And and it's interesting, in Pentecostal circles, you'll you'll hear people talk about, well, my family goes back four and five generations of Pentecostals. (laughs) See, it's just... It's just history repeating itself again. Uh, or sometimes in, in certain denominations, you'll say, you know, there are certain blue blood families, right? Grandpa was a preacher. I'm, I guess I'm talking about us. Grandpa was a preacher. Dad was a preacher. Sonny Boy was a preacher. Sonny Boy of Sonny Boy was a preacher. Or certain families are treated as though T.F. Tenney used to say we're always just one generation from extinction. It's like you can pass on the gift by virtue of the fact that your last name is such and such. And Paul, he sees this as a barrier to a person giving up on themselves. So do the Jews look down smugly? Apparently at Rome, and the Gentiles were saying, Well, you know, if you were, as descendants of Abraham, if you were so special, if you're called by God, what happened? Jesus shows up. He came unto his own. Now they're quoting John. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him gave he them the legal right or authority to become sons of God. What happened to your vaunted special status? You Jews are in unbelief. You, in fact, and and we have to be careful here because this is is part of uh, uh, Jewish racism. You were the ones who crucified God's son. Think about this. You, You should have recognized it. And you didn't. Can you see how in a church where you're trying to bring together these two groups, where that would be a heck of a fight? There's nothing worse than a church fight. It's like an invitation to stick your hand in a mailbox full of rattlesnakes. 
Do you want to do that? No. Is everything within you going to avoid that if you can? Yes. And unfortunately, over the years, we've seen that. There's nothing nastier than people who believe they're right and won't give up on their position slugging it out in church. I was thinking about this the other day. Church on Sunday night, some crazy guy related somehow to Ben Pemberton's church. He got up out of his pew and started dancing down the middle aisle. And he danced all the way. And when we were singing, you know, just going along, I didn't really know who the guy was. He comes up, gets down to the end of the middle aisle. Then he kind of dances over to this side. Then he kind of dances back. Then kind of dances back. Then he had two balls, rubber balls. One of them, had he had written chaos. And the other one, I can't remember what. Chaos and confusion, I think it was. And he threw, he was dancing and speaking in tongues, supposedly in the spirit, but he threw those balls on the platform. My inclination was, we're going to stop the service and we're going to kick this guy out. Um, Brother Eddie's inclination was, let's just keep singing. And I don't know, I don't know whether his objective was you know, it's almost like a shaman, right? Like a witch doctor. going to cast a spell. For years, those two balls sat on the shelf in the office in the chaos and confusion. And I, at some point, threw them out. You know, if keeping them meant that there was going to be chaos and confusion, this is thought to be, by academics, one of the reasons why Paul writes the book of Romans why he spent so much time in 9, 10, 11 explaining the whole doctrine of election. The doctrine of election, yes, covenant by God means I realize that you can't keep your, your part of the deal, so I'm going to keep both sides of the deal for, for both of us. But Paul, and this is why it's, it's so unfortunate, people will say to me, over the years, consistently, oh, no, no, we're not going to read in 9, 10, 11 because it's so controversial. But if we could understand, here again, Paul has made the request, pray for me that words may be given to me so that I, when I open my mouth, I may speak boldly about the mystery of the gospel. And if, if we know, have you ever watched a movie that was so complicated in the storyline, it was only watching the movie the fifth, sixth, or seventh time, turning the volume up, that you actually figured out what was going on. So this is what has happened in America. We have, we have simplified the Gospels, made it simplistic. We've removed the mystery from it, the depth of it. Grace is no longer amazing. And what Paul does in 9, 10, 11 is he's trying to show that it was God's purpose from the beginning to be able to offer salvation by grace through faith to all the families of the earth. And that's what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. All kinds of people. People we don't like. People we don't understand. People that ought to straighten up. People that ought to do the right thing, right? So you, you see this, this conflict is still in the church. The Jews looking down their noses on the Gentiles, and the Gentiles turn around and say, well, you know, you're supposed to be the chosen people of God. 
And Paul is out to destabilize this kind of false confidence. So you have to go back, and the only way that I know how to do this, we won't get through all of this today. Aren't you glad about that? Don't you know? Uh, but, but we really have to go back to the beginning of chapter 2 and kind of slowly walk through. So let's take a look at the first 11 verses of chapter 2. There's a reason why chapter 2 begins here. <laughs> because in chapter 1, after Paul makes his declaration, I'm not ashamed of, of the gospel, then the first group that he's going to approach is the Gentiles outside the commonwealth of Israel have no hope. They have no God. There's no hope of salvation for them. So he's going to get the amen corner on his side here. And years ago when uh, I did my first kind of expository tour through the book of Romans, which we never finished, We got maybe to chapter 8. So he's going to take a shot at Gentile immorality. You can read through chapter 1. He says, and he begins it by saying in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So God is angry. He's upset. What is he angry and upset about? Well, Paul is not going to play all his cards yet. He's He's going to say, God is angry. Here, obviously, God is angry and upset about this. What is it? Look in verse uh, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the truth of the matter is there are some things that should not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Don't you wonder the mind of the Apostle Paul? Have you ever heard anyone describe sin in such a variety of ways here? Foolish faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things, see, this is the law, they know such things, uh, who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know what? When he gets to the end of chapter one, all the righteous Jews who have the law are giving Paul a, a standing ovation. That's preaching. Preach it, Paul. Those dang no good Gentiles. Hmm. So Paul, because he's a master rhetorician, he doesn't turn to preach to the Jews until verse 17. So who does he preach to at the beginning of chapter 2? Look what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Who, Who is the next group that comes up? Every one of you who judges. Now we know that the Jews were into uh, self-righteous judgment. But Paul doesn't specifically call them out to verse 17. So now 
who does he turn to? He turns to the moral Gentile. The writings of Marcus Aurelius, the writings of Seneca. Seneca was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. The Stoics. There's very much a Stoic influence in the scriptures. We know that the Stoics were present on uh, Mars Hill in Athens when Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17. These were the Gentiles who saw the debauchery of Gentile immorality in the world. And because the law of God, as Paul explains in chapter 2, is written on their hearts because all men are made, all men and women are made in the image of God. They said to themselves, there, there must be a better way to live our lives than to just wallow in, in the list of sins that Paul has outlined in chapter 1. But it, it's very difficult to subscribe to a particular a set of ethics in your life without looking down on somebody else who doesn't live their life according to these rules that you think are important. The idea of work, right? You should get up every morning and you, could, you should show up early at work and you should leave late. When, when Andrews, little Andrews started a job where I'm working at, I told him, you want to be there 15 minutes early and you want to leave after everyone else has left. Now, what is that? Well, there's, there's a certain righteousness in that, right? Especially when work starts at 8 and somebody consistently walks in at 8.10. <laughs> then it's like, like, yeah, we'll leave names out of this. The temptation is when this happens over and over again, so at It's Alive Automotive, there's a, there's a morning meeting every morning at 8 o'clock for all the employees. There's, I don't know, 17 or 18. So somebody walks in late, Jeff, who is the owner, will whisper and say, everybody turn around and watch, watch this person as they walk in. So I, I've been subjected to this kind of ridicule where you walk in and everybody's staring at you like, and then you have to say, what do you say? Um, traffic was bad, right? Because you know that you have violated part of the group ethic. So it's hard to subscribe, you know, like it, old school was you worked hard and you, and you worked to get an honest day's wage. There's a, there's a fellow mechanic, older man, he has shoulder surgery. So he's out for a couple months. He comes back on the first day. At the end of the day, he says to the owner, he says, I don't think I'm giving you your money's worth. He said, I just can't, I can't turn the wrench with my right arm the way I used to. Well, now... A younger guy might say, okay, well, maybe I am only 70%, but, you know, I need this job, and unless he's going to fire me, I'm just going to hope I get better. 
You see what I'm getting at? So there is a righteousness that is not based on the law, but it's a contrived righteousness that says these are the rules that are important to me that have guided my life. And guess what? If you would subscribe to these rules, your life would be better too, like mine. Look at it again. Chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So it's almost impossible not to pass judgment. This is the group that Paul is talking about. You're not as bad as the first group, but you're still guilty of passing uncharitable judgment. For in passing judgment on, on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And you've heard me say this before. The reason why we notice that there is a sliver in someone else's eye is because we got a log hanging out of our own eye. That's Jesus, right? That's, that's what Jesus said. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, it's almost impossible, I would say it is impossible, to subscribe to certain rules for living and not pass judgment on people who do not subscribe to those same rules. We know that the judgment of God uh, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, see, he's he's not being specific here, Remember, the Jews have just given Paul a standing ovation at the end of chapter 1. So he has, like Jesus telling a parable, he has drawn them in, drawn them in, drawn them in. He says, I'm going to get to you. He doesn't make that announcement. I'm going to get to you. But let's, let's talk about judgment in general principles. Look what he says. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? He will... Rendered to each one according to his works. I've often heard people quote this verse out of context and say, right there it says that works are important. Faith without works is dead. These are the works of righteousness people. What Paul is saying, if you're the kind of person that keeps an exact account, I have just started in the last year or so writing down in you know your checking account, that little thing where you're supposed to write down the check number and who you wrote it to and how much, and then you're supposed to put the deposits in with the date, and then you're supposed to figure out how much money you have. And for years, the way I figured it was, if I didn't get an overdraft notice from the bank, I'm good. Christy, on the other hand, Like when she's figured the church checking account, she'll come out all exasperated, frustrated, frizzled, saying, I'm four cents off. And I'm like, four cents? Who cares? What Paul is saying is if you're the kind of person 
who's going to keep an exact accounting, God's accounting will always be more accurate than yours. Whether it's four cents, 40 cents, four dollars, $40, $400, $4,000, $400,000, $4 dollars If you break the law, the least little bit, you are guilty, James tells us, you're guilty of breaking the whole commandment. So when Paul talks about works, that you'll be judged by your works, if you go to the judgment bar and that's your mindset, this is my paycheck, I worked for it, I deserve it, When you get to the judgment seat, the judge is going to say, there's a little accounting problem. And this is why Paul picks up on this whole theme when when he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. In other words, God is now adjusting the book You're not going to be judged solely on the basis of works because you'll always lose there. But I'm going to write down in the book here, Abraham believed God, and I'm going to credit you as righteous because of that. So Paul's objective here, and here, once again, we need to be reminded that the book of Romans is a compilation of Paul's arguments that he's used over his lifetime Every time, every city that he went into, what was his normal practice? He would go to the synagogue. So Paul has dealt with objections. He's dealt with arguments. And at the end of the book of Acts, he says, I'm done with the Jews. The Jews will not listen. And he's a Jew himself. The Jews will not listen. And now God is going to turn to the Gentiles with the mystery of the gospel because they will listen. All right, we can hardly stand that, never mind anymore. Amen. The reason why we can celebrate today, this day of Pentecost, is because uh, the mystery of the gospel is true. How you orchestrated from the beginning of time, the greatest story that's ever been told, fallen mankind, how you were able to maintain being just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. It is a mystery. And to know that you entrusted the Apostle Paul with this mystery. Give us the words to speak the mystery of the gospel with boldness and give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name.